When Uncle Jimmy finally made it back to the car, he was flying on something more than Hennessy or weed. He handed me, he handed me a black ice air freshener he bought and told me to make the world smell this good. And when I asked him what he meant, he said, dry this van, nephew. Dry this shit. Make, make the world smell this good. Uncle Jimmy could barely open his eyes or close his mouth. Don't use the brakes like you did last time, nephew. Dry this shit all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Earl was on that thing, man. Welcome to the Bruz Bookshelf. This week is the final wrap-up on Kiese Layman's Heavy with your host, Walter Atkins, Dr. Harvey Hinton, and yours truly, Lennon Gibbons. Please subscribe, leave a five-star rating and comment, and share with your friends. Enjoy. Man, let's talk about Jimmy Earl. Greens. Jimmy Earl. One of the things that stood out in this chapter was the scene where his grandmother, Jimmy Earl's mother, KSA's grandmother, was at the hospital. And they had to do an incision in their head. And she was like screaming out to the doctor and she was screaming for pain. And they ignored her. Bruh. That's that is I'm in public health now. Right. And that's real. Like, that's a story that we don't talk about how these medical doctors have ignored us as humans, not giving us anesthesia, not giving us and just did what they did, man. And our people just. Mm. Man, I was reading The Guardian and they were talking about pain medications being prescribed to black patients. They say a black patient with the same level of pain and everything else being accounted for was much less likely to receive an opioid prescription than a white patient with the same characteristics. Right. And to determine that, to make sure there was racial bias, they did a study and the researchers looked at more than 60 million records of pain related emergency room visits from 2007 to 2011 for people between the ages of 18 and 65. And there was like five conditions that were examined mm-hmm. and broken down in two categories, definitive and non-definitive. And so in the first category, definitive, it was stuff like kidney stones and long ba- uh, bone fractures. Yeah. And then in the second category, it was like toothaches and abdominal pain. Right. And then it said, so black patients had about half the odds of being prescribed opioids compared to the white patients. Right. And We're less although, socially responsible. We can't handle it. <laughs> so that had like an adverse effect because in the end, white people ended up being more addicted to opioids than black people. Duh. And the researchers found out that the doctors believed that the black people had a higher pain threshold and they thought that the black people were more propensed to be hooked on drugs and that we were exaggerating our pain right. so we can get the drugs. They don't believe us. And, yep, they didn't believe us. And they always discredit us and marginalize us. Therefore, 
that when we screaming out for pain, they just ignore us. That was that was a sad scene, man. Not to mention uh, Jimmy Earl's addiction. Yeah. What was he on, man? <laughs> Jimmy Earl was a funny dude. What the hell was Jimmy Earl on, man? What was Jimmy Earl on when he came out the store? Man, <laughs> I, I think Jimmy Earl was doing crack, man. <laughs> you yeah, so? it said when Uncle Jimmy finally made it back to the car, he was flying on something more than Hennessy or weed. <laughs> he handed me he handed me a, a black ice air freshener he bought and told me to make the world smell this good. <laughs> and when I asked him what he meant, he said, dry this van, nephew. Dry this shit. Make, <laughs> make the world smell this good. Uncle Jimmy could barely open his eyes or close his mouth. Don't use the brakes like you did last time, nephew. Dry this shit all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Earl was on that thing, man. You ever drove your drunk uncle around? Say again? Have you ever driven your drunk uncle around? Yeah. Nah, man. I, I'm, I don't come from a big family. I have. <laughs> man. <laughs> I have, Ain't man, nothing like it. Occasions. Ain't nothing like it. I have on several occasions. Actually, man, you're right. Ain't nothing like it because, like, you, you're you a youngster. And then they they want you to go in the store and buy whatever for them, but they they got you cracking up because you ain't never seen them in that state when it's a personal intimate setting. It's just you and them. Usually that drunk uncle is like loud at a, a family cookout, but when it's just you and him, man. <laughs> Dog, Jimmy Earl was a trip though, <laughs> bro. Work, working in a substance abuse facility, man. I I see like when people want to get off of stuff, like how important it is to mm-hmm. them. So like really hats off to anybody that's struggling with addiction. Like there, there are ways you can get help. I just know that there were functional people in our, in our, in my childhood that to me seemed like I knew when they were high or drunk, but it was okay. And that might be again, a sad way of looking at it. Cause we normalized it. But these were fun moments, man. I could he was he had fun with his Uncle Jimmy Earl, man. He did. <laughs> he did. Uncle Jimmy looked at me with laid salt and vinegar grease all over his mouth. <laughs> like my nose was like my nose was a fitted hat. Let me find out you went from fucking a white girl to eating <laughs> like a white girl. <laughs> <laughs> He's looking at Key. Key. Key went from being 319 pounds to like 160 yeah. pounds. Yeah, he was like, sent by the fat. He ran it all day. He ran it over campus. He just can't He ran like, everywhere. <laughs> right, right. You know what? And that kind of that kind of made me think, man, there's a pattern in their family for addictions. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they go from one thing to another. And at the same time, where he had this addiction to working out and it was excessive. He was talking about how he passed out at Kroger's. But then at, at the same damn time, his mother was developing an addiction to gambling. It, it was it was almost as mirrored as Jimmy Earl addiction to whatever so he was addicted point. to. You know what I mean? She was acting crackish with her addiction. That was a sad thing that I thought. And that's the part, man. Again, I remember my mom told me, you know, Trey, you have addictive genes in your family. 
addictions on both sides, addictions everywhere you turn. You need to be careful with these controlled substances. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And sometimes we don't know that a lot of our addictions are hereditary. And there's some things we just can't, we have to stay away from. Because if not, it will grab so a hold there's of this you. professor named Gabra Mate. He studies out mm-hmm. of Canada. And he works on, on addiction. And he's found that, like, drugs themselves aren't addictive. What he links addiction to is early childhood trauma. And most people, or a lot of people, early childhood trauma is in the sexual molestation way. The more sexual molestation, the more he sees the heavy drugs, but he's also found. I read that. Yeah. He's also found though, that early childhood trauma doesn't matter by class. So, and he used himself as a highly successful doctor and his wife being successful, but them having like a failed relationship and the impact of the absence on their children. So that children might be in the same condition as, you know what I'm saying? So those early childhood traumas, man. So is he saying pretty much traumas, they cause a level of addiction or you're more, you you have a higher chance of becoming addictive to anything if you have early childhood He's more so speaking to early childhood traumas and don't give a fuck addictions, like dangerous addictions. He says most people try all of these things that most people are addicted to one time or another and they don't get addicted to them. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Most of us have gambled before. Most of us have tried a cigarette. Most of us have drunk. Most of us have done something once or twice. So in the Netherlands, I think think it's the Netherlands where they made uh, a lot of the illegal hard drugs legal. And they have safe places where people can use these drugs. And they found out that and one of the most effective ways to get people off these drugs is going to counseling. And they found that there was a direct line between childhood trauma or trauma in your past, depression and drugs. And if you can address that trauma or that depression, then it's easy to get yourself off the drugs. The drugs ain't shit, man. And that's the uh, that's the only thing I don't like about substance abuse programs. Sometimes they get a drug too much power, it, man. A drug it's ain't an shit. Effect. Fuck that. It's shit. an effect. I saw that there was a there was an interview on one of the Joe Rogan's podcasts where he was interviewing this guy, and this guy said that uh they did studies. He was a doctor, he was a black doctor, and they said that they did studies and there was no such thing as a crack baby. And they was uh talking about that there right. was really no such thing scientifically as being addicted, being addicted to right. crack. There's no such thing as it. So pe- uh, pretty much people that were addicted to crack was had other things going Some on. Some people maybe d- just uh, enjoy the lifestyle, right. man. We're the addicted lifestyle to sugar. That's involved around that particular activity. You know, you can be addicted to obviously several different things. Like, like Harvard just said, addicted to sugar, addicted to food, to sex, addicted to shit, pornography. But some people just may enjoy those uh, dopamines that right. run through their actual brain when they're doing that actual activity and maybe just using the addiction as uh, the scapegoat because it's a word that can define the terms of what it's they're It's a scary doing, word you know? to me, man. Like, I've, I read mm-hmm. the N.A. 
manuscript one time, and like, <laughs> it, it was almost like if you read it twice, you were at it. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's fucked up. But that's kind of right. what it said. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want. I don't want. Don't do me like that, bro. You know, don't do me like that. You know. Let's talk about how Jimmy was telling Kiese about how his grandmother was talking pretty much behind his back, mm. saying that uh, Kiese been in school long enough. It's time for him to start contributing financially. Yeah. He that's said, how they be talking. <laughs> that's how they be talking when you ain't around. <laughs> nah, that's, 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 that's the story. Everybody who I knew was in grad school, black, that was struck. That's what they was dealing with. They families talking shit about them. Because their family's been supporting them. And they saying, all right, man, it's time for me to start supporting you. They family just don't understand what's going on. Right, because when you come from a place of a deficit, you know, money put a pressure on a lot of things. He said, according to Uncle Jimmy, Grandma said it was time for me to get a real job so I could help the family with money. Jimmy lied a lot, but I knew it was Grandma's style to tell the truth about whoever wasn't in the room. I told Jimmy... I made about $12,000 a year at Indiana after paying my rent, my bills. I had about $220 left every month. A hundred went to student loans for meal saps. I defaulted on when you left all those notices in the mailbox. 40 went to grandma, 20 went to savings, 60 went to food. Mama said, when you get a real job, he said again. So you go ahead and get, get on that directly and make some real money. I decided in Uncle Jimmy's van, that instead of working towards my PhD, I'll take a MFA and apply for a fellowship that plays grad students of color in liberal arts colleges to teach for two years. So that pressure of money can make you take a, a alternate route on your dreams. And some people put their dreams aside. Some people never pick up their dreams because they got to go get that bag. Yeah, KSA just did a crossover, though. That's all he did. It was a lateral move. He did a crossover. And it's funny because, like, I think I don't think that he was a financial strain on the family. Like, Uncle Jimmy ain't doing shit. How dare he talk to, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, but like, that, that's the part we always miss, right? So. Yeah, but <laughs> Uncle Jimmy also the free one with no no responsibility, too. Right. So, ain't about what PSA doing, you know? How dare, you know, him bringing that, that message. Nah, PSA is taking care of himself and he he's showing you that it ain't about the money. He's trying to accomplish something. He he, he ain't he don't have disposable income. And what he does have, he is sharing it with the family. So what grandma wants him to do is bring in more. And that's what they they always say that. I think that's why his his daddy went to Africa. Hey, so grandma always got this idea that somebody's supposed to. It's weird, man. I ain't gonna. I don't want to go too deep into that. Nah, you saying his grandma has an idea? What you, you was about to say? His grandma has an idea that someone's supposed to what chip in more money or or, or take care of her in a sense. What, what was man, you about to say? It's just, it's just something about sometimes the older black women how they were fearful of their 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 sons getting away from them, right? And and this is just stuff I've heard. Okay. Okay, um, you know they didn't let them take certain opportunities. Like I've heard a lot of, you know, men that were born, I would guess between 
the fifties and the the late sixties blame their mothers for their lack of whatever. Excellence. Yeah. However you want to define so it. So that right? you know, Jimmy Earl just is a continuation of people I know from that era who kind of felt like, you know, mama wanted them to do such and such. <laughs> it's always it's always that story. I could have did such such, but mama wanted me to do this. And you know what? I, you, know? you know what? I I think you're right about that too, man. Because um I have situ not not naming any names. That's but dirty, I, man. I don't like talking about this wall. That's dirty. No, nah, that's stuff, that's, man. that's real spill though, man. It's real spill though, because sometimes individuals in your families uh can put their can put their fears on you as a as a person and you not be able to reach your full potential, man. So real talk, right? And my mama love her to death, right? So this a this a quick mama story. So when it was time for me to go to college, right? I had several offers coming out of high school. I probably had like I want to say like 17 different offers out of high school, right? I had like University of uh, South Florida. They was trash at the time. They had just went like 0-12, I want to say. I had UCF. I had a couple schools like Fordham. I had um, a Rutgers that gave me a partial offer. And then I had the University of Toledo, which I ultimately chose chose to go to. And I had a couple other schools in South Florida as well, too, all right? My big thing going to college is that I wanted to go to a school that was going to be obviously on TV and that had a pretty solid record. And I looked at the depth chart as well, too. Like, man, you know what? If I go here, I'd be able to play in two three, two years, uh, have a chance of going to the league. I know it's a lot of thinking, but that's a, that was my mindset at 18 years old, you know. And then on top of that, um, I just wanted to be around, a you know, pretty much a fun environment, right? My mother's. And dog, you picked Toledo? No, I picked Toledo. Right. And let me tell you, let me, let me tell you why. <laughs> that, that don't sound like nothing you just said, dog. Go ahead, dog. Nah, Go but let, ahead. Me, let me tell you why, right? Let me tell you why. So the other schools I had, you, ha- you got to do the process of elimination. You look at depth chart. Depth chart, everybody that was that was in those schools and depth charts, man, they was sophomores. I wasn't going to see the field to probably okay. four years. <laughs> okay. That's just being real, though, you know? I got hold on, hold on. I know you. You said they were like... sophomores and they did what for like four years? No, he was going... I, I wasn't gonna see the field until like my my oh, third okay. year, you know? Okay. My okay. third year, right. So I'm doing process of elimination. Doing the math. Doing the math, right. You gotta do the math, you know? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh hold on, hold on, Walt. All right. I just wanna vouch for you right quick. Harvey, I don't know what you're talking about, university dog. You picked the University of Toledo, but dog, this Walt baby love. Yeah. I'm just saying, <laughs> hey, bro. Uh, hey, hey, he. Nah, well, the, I hey, hey. Nah, well, I don't know your pedigree, dog. I went to A and T. It's the MEAC. I don't give a shit about no other conference. Yeah. We got our ass kicked by Youngstown. Who cares? Yeah. But dog, educate me, Walt. Okay. I hear yeah, you. Dog, Talk to all, me. All I'm saying is, dog, he can he can make the most desolate area and the most dimmest place light up. That that's Walt. So it doesn't matter if it was Toledo or Timbuktu. When Walt step on the scene, <laughs> all the you bring him all the finest linen, all the finest women, because they at Walt's beck and beck and call. <laughs> but keep going, Walt. Don't let them do you like that. I ain't gonna let them hey, do yeah, you like yeah, that. Yeah, you got my back. <laughs> that's the rule. That's the rule. <laughs> <laughs> you you don't know who we got on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm hard hitting, dog. You know what I'm saying? I'm over here. Yeah, you know? Hard hitting. They want the Atkinson. <laughs> 
But just keep it, it yeah, hold on, but keep it going. I just had to I just had to uh, validate you, dog. Right, right, right. All right. <laughs> That's I what appreciate it, is. it, man. So yeah, so I, I chose Toledo, right? But my point was, um, as far as like parents or uh older women in our lives like putting like fear on us about their own personal personal beliefs. My, when it came time for me to cop, my mother did not want me to go far away, you know, and there mm-hmm. were so many fears that she had played in her mind and my aunties had played in their mind from time and time and time about things that could possibly happen. Not all the the mm-hmm. good that can happen about me growing away, me becoming a man, me learning how to be on my own, me learning how to, you know, uh, balance my own checkbooks and and meet other people outside of the state of Florida. Me learning how to adapt into new environments was going to always have to do when you get into corporate America. All these things you can actually learn while you out and about in a whole different state and you cut off that umbilical cord, you know, because mm-hmm. when you're that many miles away from your family, it's it's pretty much it's survival of the fittest. You know, you, it's certain things you can and cannot do. Your mindset has to be so focused on the end goal, which is to get your college degree that you can't deviate. And you can't partake in a lot of things that the average student can partake in because your your main thing is to get a college degree and to stay focused and to not, you know, mess up and mess up and uh, make a bad name for yourself. I'm going to have to say that from my observation that I think that is an African trait for when right. mothers protect their right. sons. And there's no cutoff, cutoff age. It. it has to be some some type of force in between the mother and their son, a dad or a circumstance. Like Walt, Walter created that circumstance. I'm not sure how much your dad was influencing you, Walt, or stepped in and say, "Hey, let this boy fly." But it has to be something that breaks them away. And once you get broken away, and then that's when your mother has that confidence. Or in that space builds that confidence like, okay, my son is a man and I can fall back. But it has to be something like blunt that can do that. Uh, my mama my mama told me in the last year or so that like being a mother was her number one priority. And I had to listen to that. Because when I went to Purdue, I got slapped in the face with all this shit about me being a chauvinist. And white male patriarchy, and although I was a black male, I was still heteronormative, cisgender. So I had all these notions of power and shit, and I was being abusive because my mama cooked every day. You know what I'm saying? My mama took care of us. So, like, you know, I was wrong or some shit for expecting that a woman would take care it, of it us. It wasn't wrong. It was your expectations, <laughs> man. That was you accustomed to. Yeah, that's what you was accustomed that's to. What, but, 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 as I was accustomed to, but my mama told me recently, though, that like, you know, right, wrong, and different. That once she became a mother, that became her number one priority. She's still a mother to this day. Like she didn't let you that go. always be a child. Yeah, you right. gonna always be a child. Right. Hey. Right. Uncle Jimmy Lion. I had to, I had to say What'd that. You <laughs> Uncle Jimmy lying ass. <laughs> Everybody in that family lies. <laughs> Everybody lies. Shout out to yeah, Jimmy. Everybody lies to protect. They lied to protect the other feelings. That's, That's kind of like That's the seatbelt. Did you get that analogy in that chapter, seatbelt? Driving to his mother, his grandmother's house. His mother told him to put his seatbelt on. 
and something happened where a truck blew a horn and she had to abruptly hit the brakes and he was protected by the seatbelt. She didn't have her seatbelt on and she still put her hand yeah. over. You know how mothers do put their hand over the to the child. Yeah. Right. The hand on the chest. She didn't protect herself and her chest hit the steering wheel. But the chapter ended. He was in need of help. Um, he was laying up on the floor with a bad hip and he was calling his mama because he really needed help. But he was so concerned about her. He just said, mom, just pick up the phone. I just want to know if you okay. And so it's kind of like the same thing. She the one was in danger without her seatbelt on and she protected him and she was worried about him, even though her chest just hit the steer- just hit the steering wheel. And here he is at the end of the chapter laying down up on the floor. He can't walk. His hip is bad. And he's calling his mama. He really needs help. But he's calling her to see if she was okay. That is that mother-son love. I just wanted to point that that out. Mother-son love that can't even be explained because you love that person so much. You're willing to put your pain to the side to to make sure they are right, man. That's, that's, That's some deep love. When I was when I was at Purdue, I I taught, and that was my first experience in the classroom. And in that relationship, being the only black man most of these white girls ever interacted with, this is also my first time interacting with white girls. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a whole lot of wild shit that's happening in the classroom when you're teaching a bunch of white girls and you're a black man all kinds of mental erotic shit taking place. And they would write you little notes and they would say little stuff to you. And I think you see the seduction taking place, but you know, it, that ain't, that ain't necessarily what it's about. Right. Um, I think teaching at the black school, it's a lot of when you really connect with them on this type of level with stuff that I was connecting with them on, I was reminding them of their uncle Jimmy Earl. I was <laughs> I, I was reminding them of their uncle who had just came from prison and all he kept talking about was the 48 laws of power, you know? So you would see these people, they would come to orientations and stuff. So you know that these people were in these students' lives. Like, these are real people, you know? And, um, but on the other side of that, at Purdue, the white professors would smoke with us, they would drink with us, they would get mad when you wouldn't drink with them. Um, you know, all of that. So that's how it goes down at a white school. At the black school, none of that. It's doctors, doctor, doctor, yes, sir, no, sir, Mr. Miss, all damn day. So it it ain't nothing like that. No, I was gonna say so at the black school, it, it was pretty much held at a higher esteem. And no one wanted to show they I wouldn't say show their true person. Well, it was like a level of respect and when it came down to like I'm not gonna show my true self amongst my peers. Uh I'm gonna be this particular person all day, every day. But when I get home I can let my hair down or whatnot. And on the white institutions it was a polar opposite. Yeah, but I because I don't think that we have the option or the luxury to not be professional at all times in our professional setting. Now, Linda, you're right because we we'll, don't have a second chance. Yeah, we don't have a second chance. We walking on. A- so, so we can't be them. We can't be them. That kind of leads me in to the story of Cole. But there are people. Go ahead with the story of Cole. Now, what was you about to say, Harvey? 
So. They, there, there are people who can who live freely, and they do do well at HBCUs because they 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 do what they got to do. So I think that you know I don't. I, <laughs> there are people who 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 do have fun, but you're right. I think for the most part, it is assumed that we have to be better than we don't get the second chance, and we have to mirror this this something. That people are constantly working towards. No, think, and it's it's heavy, man. Think about heavy to me. In context of the book, right? Remember when KSA first got to KSA first got to Vassar, there was this professor that kept telling him, "Hey, man, uh, you're real. You're lucky. You're lucky to have this job. Hey, man, you're lucky to have this job. You remember that? And if KSA mentioned like, how am I lucky to have this job?'" And why is he always telling me I'm lucky to have this job when he don't even know what I do? He he don't even know what I teach. He don't even know, you know, he he just keeps telling me I'm lucky to have this job. And come right. come to find out, this guy who's telling him he's lucky to have this job, he ain't come to find out. Huh? <laughs> come to find out. <laughs> Shit, he ain't got what code. <laughs> Get Howard Cole. That was your response. Shit. What'd you say? No, first of all, you said come to find out. <laughs> that shit, come to find out. That's hilarious, dog. That is some definitely down south black colloquial. That's how black people talk, come to find out. Oh, so you saying come to find out is a southern colloquialism? No, oh, that's, that's black straight, dog. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and then you responded with shit like that ain't that's the second most common southern response shit <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like when a nigga try you man shit <laughs> he said I thought, he said I thought about the older colleague who suggests I work with Cole the same colleague who insisted on letting me know how lucky I was every time he saw me he had no idea what my work was on, no idea what I wanted to do with language, no idea who or what I was before getting a job at Vassar. We both knew Cole, a dealer of everything from weed to cocaine, but to be a college graduate, a college professor, a college trustee, or a president of all kinds of American things in spite of being scared and desperate and guilt. So here's a story on Cole. Cole was a student that was getting a little too chummy with Kiese. He started, he wasn't calling him Mr. Layman. He was calling him Key. Come on, Key. You know, talking to him, coming to his office and having casual conversation with him. And Key was caught up in this, he was caught up in this situation where lines were getting blurred and it was a gray area. Now I'm not your professor. I'm more like your friend. Right. And his mother told him to keep the two separate, but he didn't listen to his mother. It's kind of hard to listen to the advice when these is not that much age difference between you and the students. And you're far, you're far from home and you had no family and friends there. So, of course, exactly. you're going to fraternize with them. That's how me and Walt met. But anyway, I wasn't a college professor, though. But anyway, um, this guy got so comfortable that he started selling. He was selling drugs right in front of KSA's face. And he's like, hold on. Yeah. Did did Cole and Douglas just do a, a a transaction in front of me? Then Cole got so bold, he said, Hey man, you wanna get on this? 
he was like, what you talking about? And he was like, yeah, man, you can make some money if you can become a part of it. And Kiese kind of like questioned him because he was thinking about it. Because, of course, you know, you got them financial pressures that we was just talking about where Uncle Jimmy man. told him, Grandma said that you need to start making some money. Kiese kind of thought about it. And he said, well, he said, are any other professors in on this? And he was like, yeah. He said, were any of them black? He said, no, but you could be the first one. So Key was really considering it until he gave this girl. So he gave Maisie a ride. And right. she said, when they got out, she said, you friends with that white boy, Cole? She asked me in the parking lot. And he said, friends? No, nah, he's my thesis student. Good. That white boy and his friends, they be slinging so much of that shit on this campus. How you know? I just know, she said, before dapping me up and walking towards the main building. So that was kind of like the red flag, the eye opener, the message, right. like people say, the message from God to say, hey, right. Kiese, if you was even thinking about joining coal to sell dope, <laughs> you better think again, son. Black women know some shit, though. There's something, and once again, D- drop a little bit on black you. women. Uh, hey, let me drop a little bit on you. Maybe on your ass, but man, but anyway, here's the story. What'd you say? Mm -hmm. I was gonna say, man, that's crazy because of the the, going back to his grandmother and going back to his financial situation, man. Like, um, uh, it was a quote that goes like, "Financial confidence allows you to be uh, financial confidence allows you to be present in the moment, and financial stress can take over your life and your mind." So. With Kiese, his mind was his mind was even thinking about con- pausing and considering even to be indulging into like a drug transaction and also being a part of a drug operation. Ain't no telling. He right. could have made a couple hundred bucks or whatnot, but because right. he was struggling financially, he was like, "Man, you know what? I can even consider making this extra this couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or however much it may could possibly be, man." And that's I mean- crazy. Even consider that, you know, when he's a professor. I, I like that quote. Say that quote one more time. The quote goes Financial confidence allows you to be present in the moment. Financial stress can take over your life and your mind. Dog, that quote is so befitting to that, this whole scene in this book. And that was a great quote, Walt. That is so, that is so fitting. Dog, so here's, uh, let me finish the story of Cole. Cole ended up getting caught with all this dope and scales and all this stuff, right? So Kiese is on the board. He's the only black person that's on the board and they re- and they're going over his charges and they, they trying to figure out whether or not they should uh, turn him over to the local authorities to go to jail, kick him out of school or whatever, right? And this guy comes up with this defense of transformative justice saying that he went out to a club and this big black dude made him buy drugs for him from him <laughs> and Kiese looking at him like that's bullshit he said because if he was so big and black why would he make you buy drugs for him from him why wouldn't he just take your money and keep the drugs and these white boy and these white professors and they're sympathizing with Cole and they're like, oh my God, I can't imagine you being so small and being approached by such big black Hulk. Right? So they are sympathizing with this dude and they let him off. 
And KSA looking at him and he's like, no expulsion, no suspension, no disciplinary probation, no nothing. And he's like, man, I got a homeboy that got 25 years for way less than that. And y'all just about to let this white boy walk. Then I can imagine that white boy looking at Kiese, winking his eyes, saying, shit, I tried to put you on. <laughs> white privilege, buddy. Yeah, but That's this white. is what I wanted to talk about. He said, my third semester at Vassar, I learned it was fashionable to call Cole's predicament privilege and not power. I had the privilege of being raised by you and grandma, who's responsibly loved me in the blackest, most creative state in the nation. Cole had the power to never be poor and never be a felon. The power to always have his failures treated as success, no matter how mediocre he was. Cole's power necessitate he literally was too white, too masculine, too rich to fail. George Bush was president because of Cole's power. An even richer, more mediocre white man could be president next because of Cole's power. Even progressive presidents would bow to Cole's power. Grandma, the smartest, most responsible human being I knew could cut open chickens' bellies and wash the shit out of white folks' dirty <laughs> underwear because of Cole's power. And then I like how he said that, um, I just wanted to jump. I was supposed to encourage Cole to understand his power bought down buildings, destroyed countries, created prisons, and lathered itself in blood and suffering. But if used for good, his power could lay the foundation for liberation and some great semi-balance of justice in our country and possibly the world. I like that. So basically, he's just looking at Cole. He's like, man, we calling this privilege. This ain't privilege. This is power. <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes when people be be trying to shame white people and, and talk about white privilege and, and pissing them off and getting nowhere, dog, maybe they, they're using the wrong term. It's not white privilege. It's power. And that and that's and to that point, you're right about that. It's both. It's racism, it's power plus privilege, it's racism, it's both. But by by attacking it though, you're never gonna win. You're never gonna win, though. You're never gonna win. Your best option is to try to understand it. And yeah, really try to understand that and see how you can align yourself with it sometime. And if it's if it's beneficial to you in a situation. That has to be understood as a not as a compromise, but the reasons why, as a strategy. Exactly. And it's 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 an honor of respect to me to all of those who's lost their lives trying to combat it. And I think at the end of the day, we have to be conscientious of it. We operate within those contexts. And it's like moments like this that really remind you how much of a nigga you are. Shout out to my man, Amari Dyson. He would talk about niggerization moments. We'd be niggerized and that's one. He was definitely niggerized in that moment because because he saw his external be villainized because that was him. You know what I'm saying? He's he's the only person in that in that discussion that fits the description. Of right. The, villain. the big black nigga. So it touched home. Kim. He said because he's looking around, he's saying, you know what? These are the same conversations they have about people like me. And I'm in the right. room and I'm watching racism 
happen right before my eyes. And it's almost right. like I'm invisible, like they're doing it like I'm not right here. How do you think he was feeling in that situation? He was feeling like, oh, it, he discussed how he was feeling. He he felt he felt sick to his stomach. And every time right. he said something, they always, they, they tried him. They looked at him and they said, do you know what transformative justice is? And he like, I know everything about transformative justice. Do you? You know, they was trying to oh, yeah. they was trying to chump his intelligence and, and they was trying to chump his intelligence. And every time they tried to, he always had a, 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 a rebuttal to it. But it didn't work because you can have all the rebuttals you want. You can have all the hashtags and the and the great memes you want. You're not going to stop this juggernaut. This juggernaut of racism has been on the track. And this train has been coming and there's nothing you can do about it. Dog. dog, think about it. But you know, one thing I can't give Kiese credit for, man. Kiese been this, fighting racism his whole life. Just like when he let, let, when he was on the train. What's up? Use this as an example to make a point. Not to not to sound coonish, but to make this point. You know gaining something like people confuse what does it mean to really gain something so what does he gain by being on the board that's the first question and what does he gain by drawing attention to the faulty logic is it just to question the logic of the story or is it to defend a character of the black male like what's what is he gaining from from going against the tide because some people will argue that in a situation like that, you would just simply go, you know, I voted with the majority <laughs> and just, just turn your fucking head. And like, I'm not getting in this shit, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, why even why even get into it knowing that this kid is a slippery slope? You know, so is he is he really just thrown off by the story? I've been in a situation that I ain't going to get too deep into with some students, and I just couldn't believe the fucking story they was telling no, I mean, by him being on that board, right. remember, you remember uh, one of the reasons why uh, Mazzy was in the car with him because he had just got her off because he was on that board after she assaulted her roommate uh, for right. saying something disrespectful to her. And they was trying to kick her out of school. And by him right. being present so on the time. board and what you say? Right. But by him that, being present that, on the board and having that other that point was, of view. He was able yeah. to uh, keep her in school. Now, that's different because she's right there. In this instance, what is he defending? Is he questioning Buddy's logic? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like I've been in a situation where I saw some students that I did not want to see get in trouble, but I could not believe they wanted us to go with this dumbass story that they was presenting. And I was just like, God damn, you got to come with something better than this, man. Man, listen. This is really what you want to see. <laughs> Dog, we talk about, you, you talk about cold, right? And all them white people in that room, they didn't say, they didn't look at each other and like, oh my God, we about to come up with this old dumbass story. You know what they did? They stuck the cold. We don't know if they knew that story was dumb because they was on cold. That's what I'm saying. They was bro. like, That's oh my God, I can't believe that you, that would happen to you. So what it they is, stuck is, on what cold. What is I think what Harvard trying to say is like, what is he gaining? Yeah, what what Harvey's trying to say is like in, in KSA's situation, he has he has nothing to gain from the situation. Like, why would he go against the grain 
knowing right. that he can't he, stop it. He can't stop it. A and then also B is going to make him look maybe different amongst his colleagues as well too. Right. So who is he defending? Yeah, what's he defending? That's what yeah, he's right. saying. That's what he's saying. Yeah, that's what he's saying. It's getting line. He defended the girl. That's right. Defend her. Yeah, she's there. But in this case, what is it you defending? Bro? It's already written. It's already it was written. already right. decided like, upon before you walk in the room. And Lenny, like you were saying, they are on code. They on code. They on code. They're gonna side with one another nine times out of ten, unless it's a all their kids getting their dough from Cole. They all know the yeah. story. They know who he is. Hey, he got yeah. all the dirt on everybody. And, and Cole and Cole served everybody on that board. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and you know what? Why you tripping PSA? Right, why you tripping? <laughs> you know, that, that hey, kind of brings me to it. Hey, I saw the question, but look, as we was first talking prior to the podcast starting, man, how you were saying that I got to start, you know, getting acquainted with some of the the uh, officials in my area whatnot. Cole was acquainted with every official, every board member. <laughs> <laughs> Cole, Cole supplied the cocaine and the hoods for all they parties. So, <laughs> you think we about yeah, to lock we can't get rid of Cole. Cole. get our cocaine from? <laughs> Yeah. Cole to connect. <laughs> what you, what you yeah, he to connect. Scary black guy. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, man. No, all right, check this out. So in the book, there's three times in the book where people that's close to Kiese have told him about himself. We talked about it in the last podcast when we were talking about how Lathan was telling him about himself, right? And then there was another part in the book where uh, Malachi Hunter had that man-to-man talk with him. Y'all remember that? And he was telling him, like, look, man, you doing all, you you trying to tell these white folks about themselves without getting paid for it. You know, you need to to chill out with that because they don't care about that. That was one of those instances. We just talked about it. We just talked about it. Right after the cold thing, remember what happened to him. That was this anonymous person writing threatening letters to the school about Kiese and saying that they're going to do this and this and cause uh, harm to Kiese and they're going to do something to the school if Kiese is still working there. So the right. police told Kiese, hey, man, we need to talk to you. And he said, OK, what y'all want to talk to me for? And he said, you know, we got these threatening letters, uh, you know, talking about causing violence to you and violence to the school. He said, okay, so why are you talking to me about it? Because we think it's you. And he said, what? Why would I do that? And he said, you know what? Uh, I take a lie detector test right now. And he said, okay, then you take a lie detector test right now. And they said, we'll set that up for you. We, uh, You know what? We'll call you tomorrow. So Kiese said that he called them the next day. And they said, you know what? Never mind. Don't worry about it. But it was funny how after that incident happened with Cole and Kiese wasn't on Cole, Kiese they started coming up with the same bullshit that they came up the last time while he was at Millsaps College about him taking the, the book out of the library and returning it. So they started coming up with some stuff to get rid of him because he wasn't on code. And he ended up, and he was also coming up for tenure. Is, is that what it's called, Harvey? Tenure. Tenure. Yeah. Okay, tenure. So, um, yeah, he was coming up for tenure. And they came up with that old concocted story, which caused him to leave Vassar. And he was like, you know what? If I'm going to be dealing with this racism up here 
in this old country ass town in New York, I might as well deal with that shit back in my hometown to be close to my family. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, so his ass left. But before he left, this is the part that I want to talk about. And this is like towards the end of the book where he invited his mother, him and his mother start. He went from the being addicted to losing weight. Then he picked up the same addiction that his mother had of gambling. And he invited his mother to the hotel. And once she got there, she came up to the room and she was like, hey, Key. And he, he just abruptly interrupted her. And he said, wait, so I abuse you just loud enough for the people in the room next door to hear. I think so. I abuse you by lying to you. Did you abuse me? You stood up and walked towards the door. Do you ever just feel lonely? Like, I feel like I walk around this world raw key. It's hard to open up when you already open and people never just get tired of sticking their nasty hands into that raw. I hear you, I said, but I'm asking if you abuse me. How did I stick my hands into your raw? How did I abuse you? You come from that raw key. I think you are raw too. I know you love me. I just think you share too much with people who don't love either of us. You let too many hands into that raw. There are things I want to say to you that white folks do not deserve to hear. I have a heart key. I have a heart and a job. And even though you don't act like it, you do too. You have gotten to be much better and much more careful. White folks do not deserve to stick their nasty hands into our raw. Hiding from them and being excellent are actually the only ways for us to survive here. I told you that running and hiding from folks who can't see themselves as fatal consequences. And you told me that unnecessarily opening yourself up for folks who can't see themselves have even more fatal consequences. And I asked you, why are we still talking about people not in this room? Because they're listening key, you said. They read everything you write. They see how you dress. They're watching. You make it easy for these white folks to discredit you. You really think you're free? This is one of the most endearing things about you. But every single time they remind you who you really are, you crumble and lie about that crumbling. That word crumble is hard, dog. That's a heavy, heavy way to describe the situation. He crumbles. That's his mama saying, oh, I'm trying to get through to you. You worried about me hurting you and what I'm saying about you? That's not the point, G. That's not the point. I think that's how, that's how you're right. You're right. That's how we miss the point sometimes, man. And also, that's a hard conversation to have uh, with your son as well, too. Because think about it. She's a mother, so she has her own external fears that she has to deal with. But she also is a revolutionary as well, too. But she's also getting older in age. And she picks and chooses the battles that she wants to deal with. And she, she knows when to scale back. She knows when to scale back, exactly. But Key is at that point right now where he has to understand the, the battles to, to, to pick and choose from. And on top of that, she's trying to help him build his mental capacity up so that he doesn't crumble in front, of, in front of white folks every time that they don't agree with what his ideology is as far as like the right treatment that should go along with a black person. 
I will not misdirect or manipulate human beings regardless of their age, especially those human beings who love me enough to risk being misdirected or manipulated. I will not misdirect or manipulate myself. I will not say I am naked when I'm fully clothed. I will not say I'm sorry when I'm resentful. I will not give my blessings away. I will love myself enough to be honest when I fell in loving. I would accept that black children would not recover from economic inequality, housing discrimination, sexual violence, heteropatriarchy, mass incarceration, mass evictions, and parental abuse. I would accept that black children are all worthy of the most abundant, patient, responsible kind of love and liberation this world has ever created. And we are worthy of sharing the most abundant, patient, responsible kind of love and liberation with every vulnerable child on this planet. I love his writing. I love how he put pen to pad. Now, he is an excellent writer. And sometimes it makes me question myself. It makes me want to get up and write and revise. Like he says, he finds joy in writing a bad sentence or writing something bad so he can come back later correcting it and making it great. You know, so he's he's like the Kobe Bryant of writing to me. You know, he he works on it. He works at it. He reads. He he works at it. Oh, just think about it. I like um, it, man. Think about how much of an asshole he is to everybody else. Think about how much of an asshole Kobe was to everybody else. Like like Oh. What? You know, they said people like Michael Jordan and Kobe couldn't can't coach a team because they expect all the players to be able to play like them or have the work ethic that they have. No, imagine being in KSA's class. Think about how many A's you think he gives I was I'm that same drive and I learned just to let it go. Like you have to learn to get A's out. If you if you came at it like that, you you won't be successful at all. You would not be successful. Man, I read your writing, Harvey. Your writing pales in comparison to Kiesa. Different writing. So that little horse, th- that horse that you was on, talking about, man, I think I can do it. I'm a, <laughs> uh, I'm a scholar writer too. Nah. <laughs> nah, totally different writing for totally different audience, dog. Come on, dog. Nah, I'm just playing, dog. You're good. Totally different audience, dog. You good, but dog. Like, dog, <laughs> nah, you got to think, though, dog, like, that's, it's lonely to write. You know what I mean? You talking about sitting, remember in the beginning, talking about sitting down and all that, you know? Very lonely. Very yeah, lonely yeah, to write, yeah. man. Very lonely. Hey, man, that concludes this book. Shout out, shout out, KSA. Great book, brother. Great book. We enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Join us next week as we will take the entire month to review Dr. Carter G. Woodson's Miseducation of a Negro. Also, we will infuse some black history that has been omitted or forgotten out of our history books in the classroom. We will review Dr. Claude Anderson's Dirty Little Secrets, Part 1, and provide our thoughts on that as well. Thank you. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating, a comment, and share with your friends. Hope you enjoy it.